Welcome to Sparks of History, where Jewish history and world history meet. We are extremely pleased to have with us today Rabbi Professor Sholem Karmi. Professor Karmi is Chair of Bible and Jewish Philosophy at Yeshiva College. Additionally, he is the Editor Emeritus of Tradition, the highly regarded journal of the Rabbinical Council of America. Rabbi Karmi is also an affiliated scholar at Cardoza Law School. Rabbi Karmi is an acknowledged expert on biblical theology and interpretation, modern Jewish thought, religious Zionism, the interface of traditional Talmud study, modern scholarship and theology, and probably much more that I've missed. And today we were discussing with Professor Karmi the life and writings of one of the outstanding 20th century Jewish personalities, Rabbi Chiel Yaakov Weinberg. Again, thank you very much, Professor Carvey, for joining us today. About your background and how you became interested in Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg. Uh, I know about Weinberg because I studied in Shavuot and uh, did whatever uh, these things involve. Uh, He's important primarily as a shiva's height of his power. He was the head of the Hildesheimer Yeshiva Rabbinical Seminary in Berlin. Uh, he was a pioneer in integrating traditional Lithuanian learning with uh, modern academic scholarship is a person who had significant ideas about theology, about life in general. The biography is one that draws a lot of attention to itself. Uh, born in Lithuania, studied in Lithuania Shivot. Uh, ended up in Germany. As I mentioned, he was head of the Hildesheimer Shivuch. Really meant to a large extent he was a major rabbinical figure, major posek for German Jewry, late 1920s and 1930s. In the 1930s, he had to leave the seminary under difficult political conditions. He survived the war in a variety of places uh, and was highly respected in many circles of orthodoxy between the end of the war and his own death. Even though during that period, his own existence was very isolated. He lived in Switzerland uh, and was somewhat cut off from, from other uh, centers of, of rabbinical study. Going going back a little bit, um, so Rabbi Weinberg studied in the famous Slobodka yeshiva. Um, did he always consider himself a student, a Musa student of Slobodka? Was that ingrained in him for his entire life? He never turned his back on it. Uh, when he was heading institutions in Germany, 
Did he impose most of the regimens there? I have no evidence of it. Uh, but he never turned his back on it. Uh, various stages in his life, he wrote about Slobodka Moser, wrote Moser in general. Uh, he was one of the first people who wrote seriously about Moser and wrote about it from within. Uh, again, I, and there's no point, I don't think that he really imposed it. He, he didn't crusade in favor of turning Hildesheimers into a Moser Yeshiva. If you can perhaps tell our listeners a little bit about Hildesheimer Seminary, what it was all about, the, the, um, where German Jewry stood at the time when Rabbi Weinberg came to Germany and headed the Hildesheimer Seminary. Rabbi Zidl Hildesheimer founded the seminary probably in the 1870s. He had been at Rav in Hungary, and there he was somewhat isolated. Hungarian Jewry either went in the reform direction, what they called Neolog, uh, or uh, they were anti-general studies and against any kind of interaction with other kinds of Jews. Uh, Hildesheimer's position was probably about 10% of the Hungarian world, and at a certain point, it was better off for him to be in Germany. Uh, the seminary was a place where uh, students were ordained. It became the bulk of the German rabbinate, German Orthodox rabbinate. Uh, it was also a place where they studied other things, including what today is called academic Jewish studies, Bible, Jewish history, uh, to some degree, the use of modern philological methods in the study of Talmud. Hildesheimer herself had a PhD and was interested in these areas. Uh, the uh, Hildesheimer student was also required to have a university education, which they got elsewhere, University of Berlin or wherever else they got the degree. Uh, so these were people who presented a certain kind of ideal. Uh, Hildesheimer led the seminary for many years. He died. He was succeeded by the Dotsi Hoffman was an important posake for German Jewry and today is probably best known as a, an academic Talmud scholar uh, and as a very important person in biblical studies. Uh, Hoffman died probably in 1922, was succeeded by Leo Kaplan, young man uh, with an Eastern European training, like Nicola Weinberg. Uh, and unfortunately, he died very young. So you had that kind of framework. You had a, an institution that was not the traditional kind of yeshiva, but was uh, a very seriously orthodox. And as you got into the 1920s, the curriculum became closer to that of the Eastern European world. You had teachers whose training had been in Lithuania. Generally, this was developed in German Jewry. 
as time went on, they became closer to the Eastern European Jew. For some of the leading German Orthodox thinkers, World War I had a lot to do with it. Those who were in the army, Isaac Breuer, was Schoenstatt uh, von Hirsch's grandson, was in Eastern Europe during the war, and that brought a lot over. Uh, the Hirschian community in Frankfurt, uh, Roy Hirsch had planned a yeshiva. It never happened until after World War I. There was an appetite for it, and uh, the time was right. The Hildesheimer approach was in many respects different from the Hirschian approach because they did value academic study. Not simply uh, university education, I mean, uh, you know, reading literature and then studying uh, the best as in thought by, by uh, European men, uh, but they also were interested in Semitic languages and textual history of Talmud, even biographical study of Talmudic rabbis and the like. So there was like, such a gap, and that gap continued, I think, during the 1920s as well. So the, the war breaks out and Rabbi Weinberg um, finds himself or is sent to Poland and is in the Warsaw Ghetto. What was the experience like for him in the Warsaw Ghetto and how did he end up surviving the war? Exactly how he survived, I don't know. Okay. Uh, the best work on his biography is by Mark Shapiro, which published a book about 20, 22 years ago, and since then has published some additional documents and articles on the subject. And uh, he, it's clear that somebody wanted him to survive. Uh, exactly how that worked, uh, Shapiro suggests that there were people high up in the German world who knew that he's an important rabbi and at some point they thought that he might be a good bargaining chip in terms of exchanges of prisoners or, you know, as the war went sour for the Germans, there were enough uh, German military people and political people who wanted to do something that would put them on the right side of history. Uh, Shapiro mentions that he spoke to this about this to certain people who were experts in German history, and they told him that this is a plausible reconstruction. So he was moved from one place to another. Uh, there were times that he was seriously ill. And the whole experience was obviously not a very pleasant experience. Uh, Somehow he survives. The war ended, he was still there. And so he goes from, from Eastern, European, Eastern Europe to uh, Switzerland, where he... From, from Germany, wherever they were moving down to. Uh, you know, part of moving him out of Germany was that he was in Ostjuda. He was an outside Jew and... The Nazis moved first against the Jews who were not citizens who came from elsewhere, gotten citizenship late. 
Uh, I think in terms of public relations, it was a good move for the Nazis because it was easier to get the average German to advocate getting rid of these new immigrants uh, rather than get rid of these people who have been in Germany for hundreds of years. I mean, Hitler was a, uh, I don't say it, I, 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 I have a podcast and I, I spoke well of Hitler, but he was a smart man, he was a smart politician. And sometimes he was much more aware of the public relations <laughs> issues than some of his advisors. So he would take one step and then back off and uh, take another step and back off. And even among uh, German Jews, there were those who really were not comfortable with these European immigrants. When one goes through um, Weinberg's response of the Sriedeation, I understand from, from my reading that a lot of his works from Berlin were not preserved. And we only have a part of, of the great collection of his writings. When one looks at that work, the Sriedeation, is there a shift in the issues and his tone from pre-war post-war? And if so, what is that shift? What do you sense in that shift from pre-war to post-war? Remember, Sude Aish includes a lot of different things. Uh, it's very likely that most of it, much of his most important work was lost. Uh, some of it was smuggled out. But at the point where the Nazis told him, we want you out of here, uh, they did not allow him to take suitcases to take clothing with him. Uh, but his focus was always on several different things. Uh, part of what he did was Talmud scholarship. Uh, you take uh, a classic essay that's really more like a book, First Bible City Aish, the so called Kuntus Haidit. The uh, text in, in uh, Exodus 22 uh, speaks about payment for certain kinds of torts, certain kinds of damages, as being from the best quality field, Edit, Metav, when Aramaic was called Edit. What exactly that meant was subject to Talmudic discussion. Weinberg wrote at length on that subject which makes his work very important if you're studying those Talmudic passages. He also went through the various translations, be it Aramaic, be it Greek. Uh, whereas the usual Yeshivish approach was to ignore that material or to poo-poo it, uh, he, like Adonis Hoffman, took this one seriously, whether he rejected certain views or, or accepted certain views, he, he took, him, took him seriously. And that's a major part of his work, his interest in the history of Targumim. Their make translations was uh, something which brought him in contact with what we call the, the academic world. Uh, there also are articles 
about Musar. It's written early and written late. And there were responses in the traditional sense where he was asked certain questions and he responded to those questions. Uh, in the 20s, he was responding to people in Germany. Uh, in the 20s and 30s, uh, he was also functioning in a somewhat official capacity. And that means that in terms of what he published, what he said publicly, very often he wanted to coordinate that with the major Eastern European authorities. We take one of the uh, very controversial things he was involved in. Uh, the Nazis and many non-Nazis attempted to prohibit shchita. This is what you, but this is, this is, we're talking about what, the 30s, early 30s? We're talking even about the 1920s. 1920s. I just discovered the other day, uh, it was a new book by Michael Brenner on uh, the rise of Nazism in Munich in the early 1920s. At one place in the discussion, he mentions that by late 1920s in Bavaria, they prohibited Schrita. Uh, there was a coalition of the Nazis and the Social Democrats, and they passed through that war. Uh, once the Nazis were in charge of Germany as a whole, uh, these things could move ahead. And they they, uh, they tried to prohibit certain aspects of shkita. There's an argument that the animals have to be stunned before they are slaughtered, and that would raise serious cash problems. Uh, there were questions came up regarding uh, fat poultry, and uh, the difficulty that Michael Weinberg was in was that if you prohibited Shita completely, certainly the majority of people were not orthodox, many of whom had no objection to eating kosher, but if they don't give them that option, they would fall away completely. Uh, and that even for uh, orthodox Jews, it could be a great hardship. So he explored possibilities both regarding poultry and regarding uh, cattle of some kind of compromise position, which would be halakhically acceptable. Uh, in the end, he did not publish this at the time because the Eastern European authorities he was in touch with were very much against it. And public policy considerations. A, that halakhically it really wasn't what you should be doing. B, that once you began to compromise, you would give the anti-Semites and the secularists and liberals excuses for pushing further. So in the end, this did not go public. Uh, somebody who knew Michael Weinberg well in the 1920s, my teacher, 
And when Rachel Weinberg's name came up in conversation, uh, the Rav said to me, uh, which is a formula for saying, well, everything about him is good, except this business with the Shechita where it just wasn't acceptable. He left it at that. Uh, so this was published. This was published after the war. The in a city extremely lengthy. I mean, I, I try parts of it. Extremely lengthy. Yeah, and and he's bringing other famous rabbinical figures, and and it was all yes. filed. Yes, he is. He would not make such a move unless he had other a consensus on his side. Chaim uh, Ozer in, in Vilna said no. Out of Cook, with broad enough shoulders, was not interested in getting involved. And that was that. After the war, uh, you know, people came to him in part because of his stature. He was not the one person holding up an entire polity, halachically, but he was somebody with a name who had survived the war, who met the criteria for greatness, and was to some degree open to modern considerations, be it Zionism, be it you know, kind of questions that came up about women singing at the Shabbos table. And who understood that if you prohibit, make a blanket prohibition of that, you're going to undermine a lot. And you better not to uh, push a, a stringent position on these grounds. So during those years, there was no problem preserving what he wrote. On the other hand, he was limited in terms of books. He had been in New York, if he had been in, in Israel, uh, presumably would have had access to everything coming out. In Switzerland, it was much more difficult. And he was not in good financial positions. I'm not sure whether it's published, but there, there are letters that I've seen, you know, Soloveitchik and others pleaded there's some kind of support for him. They said the man is really living in poverty. 